Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. Dr. Ben Bravery started life as a zoologist, working to save animals from extinction across the globe. Though at 28 years old, he was diagnosed with bowel cancer and confronted with the prospect of his own destruction. Ben's journey from scientist to cancer patient and now to psychiatry trainee is documented in his memoir, The Patient Doctor. On the topics of compassion, system design and medical education, Ben speaks with a conviction of someone who has lived on both sides of the doctor-patient relationship. Ben is in conversation with Dr Elizabeth Moore, President-elect of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, and Dr Ollie Robinson, psychiatry trainee and host of the Thought Broadcast from the Australasian Psychiatry. This episode of Psych Matters is equal parts storytelling and education that appeals to anyone with an interest in life, not simply medicine or psychiatry. Welcome everybody to this podcast. I'm Elizabeth Moore, I'm the President-Elect. And before we start, I'd like to formally acknowledge the traditional custodians on the several places that we are meeting and to introduce myself and my co-host. So my interest in certainly Ben's book has been around compassion-based care. It's certainly been a focus that uh, I'm currently doing in the ACT and in other places around Australia. My co-host today is Dr. Ollie Robertson, and I'll pass over to Ollie to introduce himself. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, yes, so my name's Ollie Robertson. I'm a psychiatry trainee. I'll be entering stage three of training uh, in February 2023. But amongst other things, I am also the trainee editor of Australasian Psychiatry and the host of the Thought Broadcast podcast. So it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's nice to be welcomed onto the Psych Matters for um, a sort of guest appearance and to be meeting with Elizabeth and Ben today. Uh, so thanks for having me on. Thanks, Ollie. So we're, we're very lucky today to have Dr. Ben Bravery. Now, Ben is uh, one of our psych trainees. Fabulous. I can retire. And Ben has written a book called The Patient Doctor. It's certainly something that we all need to be aware of. Uh, and I read his book last night. A very interesting read. So, Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Th thank you, Elizabeth. Hi, Ollie. Uh, as Elizabeth said, it, my name is Dr. Ben Bravery. I'm a stage two psychiatry trainee in New South Wales, currently in a child and adolescent term and loving it. I did, I have authored the memoir called The Patient Doctor, uh, which has been out for about eight weeks now, making the rounds. Eight weeks, only eight weeks. Goodness. <laughs> it's been a busy eight weeks. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> so then, why did you want to write the book? Oh, it's a huge question, isn't it? I mean, I wanted to write the book because I felt like I was at a point in my training where I still have a number of years to go before I'm fully qualified, before I'm a consultant. And I'm in that kind of stage of training where, as well as taking in vast amounts of knowledge or, or trying to, um, I'm also questioning why we do things and 
how we do things and the evidence or the theory for why we do things, not just in psychiatry, but in medicine generally. So it felt like a nice time to kind of put this all together. You know, I started this journey as a uh, bowel cancer patient who, after a couple of years of treatment, decided to go and become a doctor. And so I wear two hats, a patient hat and a doctor hat. And I really thought that the state of healthcare was such that my voice might contribute to the broader discussion around the kind of healthcare system we want, both for patients and doctors, um, actually. And because I think there's a lot of alignment between the frustration and also the demand for a better kind of healthcare. So I decided to put it all down to help those two sides really come together in a strong way. Um, And because I'm both a patient and a doctor, I can talk to both groups and I can talk to them in a way that I hope will help them better understand each other so that they can come together and can demand a better kind of healthcare. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking... Like most junior doctors now, you tend to have a life before medicine. And for anyone who hasn't read the book, there's certainly some explanations about what that was. Can you can you describe what you were doing beforehand and sort of a bit about your life before medicine and then, and then what it was like to discover that you were unwell? Yeah. So you're right. I went to graduate medicine. I, I find too, Ollie, that a lot of graduates have done kind of diverse things these days. Um, it's not all the biomed track, um, although that's entirely valid. I was a zoologist, so I had a long interest in animals and conservation and ended up having a particular interest in animal behavior and then large mammal conservation. So I, after working in Australia for a couple of years and getting a bit despondent with the state of environmental protection policy here, I took myself off to China of all places, a country that has an intense relationship with wildlife and where really the pointy end of conservation is kind of unfolding as they grow and expand and mature uh, as a nation. So I went to southern China to save an endangered species of deer and lived on a tropical island, basically a tropical reindeer, which looks completely out of place. It's this giant, big, furry thing. It's I'm two metres tall. They're as tall as me, feeding off grasslands in 30-degree heat. And amazingly, if I can divulge for a second because I still love animals, the, the number of these animals had got down to about 23 in the 80s. And the Chinese had miraculously saved them from literally the brink of extinction. And by the time I got there, there were a couple of thousand. And they were about to start releasing them back into the wild, which was really exciting. So I was helping with that. When that project racked up, I moved to Beijing and took a job with the Academy of Sciences, running a scientific journal uh, in zoology. And then branched out into uh, my own business, which was science communication. So my core degree was zoology and my honours was zoology, but my postgrad was SciComm. And so I founded a business in Beijing helping Chinese scientists communicate their research abroad, which at the time was super exciting. This was just after the Olympic Games. So China was an amazing place for expats with lots of energy. There was lots of ambition. They were opening up. They were looking forward. And they had a huge scientific budget. So they were really investing in all kinds of sciences from space down to fundamental zoology, right? Stuff that a lot of countries had moved on from. So I was helping in that and riding that wave. I then met the love of my life. Uh, She was a journalist in a radio station. She's a Canadian. And I went in to do an interview about giant pandas because I'd become a bit of an expert on giant pandas. And 
uh, we fell in love and that relationship was building alongside the business. But I had symptoms that I could no longer ignore. Uh, I was fit and healthy. I had no history of major illness in the family, but I had developed diarrhea and constipation. I grew pale. I was bleeding in the toilet bowl. Uh, I fainted a couple of times. I would develop in really intense abdominal pain. And one day after learning to snowboard, actually, I had an enormous bleed in the toilet bowl and was so shocked that it was time for me to disclose to people around me what was happening. And I did that. And in a couple of weeks, I got a colonoscopy back in Melbourne at the request of my mum. And I never made it back to Beijing. My whole life changed after that colonoscopy. They found quite a large tumour in the sigmoid colon. Uh, so so big that the adult scope couldn't get through. They had to use the pediatric scope. And uh, they found a big nasty tumour in the sigmoid, which explained all my symptoms. And when the pathology came back in a few days, it, it confirmed bowel cancer. And how old were you at that point? 28, Ollie. Wow. I was 28. I had no history of cancer, let alone bowel cancer. I did yoga. I was mainly vegetarian. I jogged every day and Sana was 22. So we're kind of two young people in our 20s with this whopping great big diagnosis all of a sudden. It must have been terrifying. It was. It was absolutely terrifying. And the consultation after the colonoscopy, my mum was in the room, which I now know as a doctor is the breaking bad news protocol, right? So they'd had a support person in there and the doctor beautifully went through the breaking bad news protocol. Um, I'm a fan of that protocol because it works despite it being an algorithm. I was numb. I, once I heard cancer, I stopped listening. I just squeezed my mum's hand and she jumped in and asked all the right questions and got the ball rolling on treatment. I eventually kind of came to um, and then had to start having that conversation myself with people. So a big shout out for mums everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You'd met Sana. You were very early in your relationship. Were you worried about how things would go? Oh my God, yes. To put it bluntly, she was 22, I was 28. We'd been together five months when I had the colonoscopy. Now, it's, it was one of those situations where we literally did fall in love after seeing each other the first time, but I still had a doubt about whether the relationship would survive this. It also felt really unfair to Sana that I was not only having my own life stopped in its tracks, I was effectively going to hijack her life. So she is in Beijing when I have the colonoscopy. I, she's the first person I tell she is a TV journalist at that stage, records an episode of her show, jumps on a plane that night and has been in Australia ever since with me. I had to sit down though at multiple points in my treatment and navigate that space. I almost felt like I had to give her permission to leave. I had to make her truly understand that it was okay if she didn't want to do this, if it was too much or if she decided that this was not what she signed up for. I knew I could do it alone. It would be easier, of course, with someone like Sana around, but I had to give her that space. And I think after the second time of sitting down all seriously and talking to, to her about it, she asked me to stop. She's like, it's okay. <laughs> I'm in. I'm committed. We don't need to have this conversation again. Yeah, that's uh, fabulous to have the support. But you detail in your book, you know, some of the issues that you had to go through during treatment. 
and it was fairly radical treatment. Can you talk us through a little bit of, of how you felt and how things might have gone differently? Treatment was enormous. Um, still the, the hardest thing I've done. I um, had a CT scan after the colonoscopy. There was a real urgency, actually, to find out if there were other tumours. I didn't understand this. I didn't have medical training at the time. But they think young person with bowel cancer is late stage disease because we tend to present later in the course of illness. So I was rushed off for a CT scan, which luckily showed only the one tumour. And armed with that, I took myself off to see a surgeon who was really optimistic that this thing could be cut out reasonably quickly using keyhole surgery, that I may not even need chemotherapy afterwards, depending on what they found. And I left that consultation completely full of life again, really optimistic about the future. It's by chance, actually, that I got a second opinion. My mum happened to be talking about my illness in the backyard, and a neighbour next door happened to hear the conversation and popped their head over the fence and said, um, I think Ben should get a second opinion. She happened to be an ex-cancer nurse who worked at a hospital and, and suggested I give them a call, and I did. And that consultation was nowhere near as optimistic. This professor had a very different patient doctor style, and I didn't warm to it. And when I told them that they were the second opinion, I think they got a bit offended. And they actually called what I was doing uh, shopping around which I found quite offensive at the time. But but in effect, I was shopping around, right? Like I was 28 and I wanted a solution and I wanted my life back. I think it's normal to go looking for something really hopeful and optimistic. But they wanted a lot more data before they committed to a treatment plan. So I got an MRI and it's really the second point uh, in addition to the second opinion that's life-changing because it showed that the tumor was actually a lot more complicated. It was a T4 tumor. It had breached the sigmoid, attached itself to the rectum next door, had invaded the vas deferens, probably was inside a seminal vesicle, was abutting the bladder, and they looked like a dodgy lymph node. So now I get treated for a stage three rectal cancer, which means five weeks of chemo radiotherapy, an ultra-low anterior resection with a laparotomy, a stoma for about a year, and then four months of post-operative chemotherapy. So all in all, it was about 18 months complicated along the way by a couple of infections, bacteremia, and then pulmonary emboli. But anyway, I got through it. And it, you know, it was, it was a huge thing to go through. And again, going back to support, it's not something I could have done without the people around me. It's an amazing journey, Ben. Speaking of the treatment, one of the parts of the book that I think really uh, sang to me, so to speak, was you relay an anecdote about being in hospital and lying in bed next to an older man who maybe was 50 years your senior and he'd been suffering from lung cancer and he was in uncontrollable pain and at some point he'd even asked his treating team to euthanize him. And you as a young man are sitting there or lying there and it's striking fear into your heart thinking, well, is this in my future? Am I going to be um, either in uncontrollable pain or at a point where I'm going to be asking to be euthanized? But you didn't feel emboldened to ask your treating team about whether this fear was justified. And I just wondered how many patients we treat who also go through that process of being frightened of something that we, we just miss it or we never get to the point of finding out what that is. And I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on that and uh, furthermore, if you've got any suggestions on how we can be better at doing that, addressing our patients' fears. 
Thanks for sharing that. And I'm glad that you connected with that part of the book. That was a hard part to write, actually, because that's probably one of the most vulnerable parts of my treatment. So uh, to put this in context, I had the ultra low anterior resection and then did well for about four or five days. And normally you're discharged by about day four or five. But then I stopped getting well and I started to deteriorate. And it took a couple of weeks for the team to work out what was wrong. It turns out that I'd sprung a leak at the anastomosis and it didn't kind of rear itself until I developed a fever. But in this time, my stoma was spewing out liters of liquid. My electrolytes were slowly becoming deranged. I'd lost 10 kilos. I was no longer able to get out of the bed and shuffle around the ward. I didn't want visitors. Every time I put food to my mouth, I gagged uncontrollably. And it occurred to me, Ollie, that this was all unfolding in public in a way. Mm. I was in a four-bed room and the four bedroom was actually really nice when I was healing because I was talking to people and I was interacting with them and I saw people come and go and I was like, oh, I'm going to be discharged soon. And then when I deviated from this path, I started to feel really alienated by this space. I started mm-hmm. to feel like it was exacerbating my vulnerability. And I was I was put next to this gentleman and I understand that we used to design hospitals this way and there's lots of reasons for that. But it just occurred to me that nobody had thought that maybe what the gentleman was expressing might be affecting the people around him. And the reason I think we forget that is because we have forgotten that they're people. Part of that is system and part of that is the routine of our jobs and part of that is the design of the hospital. And in one particular ward round while I was unwell, this person stands forward from this group of strangers and threatens me with a nasogastric tube because I think the impression is I'm not eating on purpose somehow, <laughs> and, and that's why my electrolytes are becoming increasingly deranged and I'm back on IV fluids. And this was at the same time as I was listening to this man every night beg to die. And I just, for the first time, felt blamed for my illness. Not only had I been reduced to a problem, but I felt blamed for that problem. And this showed me that I didn't voice any of this to my team because I was never asked. I think as psychiatrists, we do it. And it's part of the reason I went into psychiatry. We do a pretty good job of asking about this stuff because we're thinking in those frames and in those domains. And the the, the answer to your question in a, in a, in a short way is that asking is the key, right? It's giving permission for someone to acknowledge a fear. And it's maybe even airing the fear that you think might be there. So sometimes, you know, we do this in psychiatry all the time. We say, oh, well, well, some people, when they have this symptom, experience A and B. Or I've had other patients report to me that X and Y. And I would have loved <laughs> the surgeon one ward round to go, you know, sometimes people find this four-bedroom a bit chaotic, how are you coping with it? <laughs> but they didn't. And so I didn't feel like I could actually talk to anyone about it. But I think asking is the key. And then obviously, prevention is better than cure, right? If we can create spaces and minimize the you know lateral trauma that occurs in these healthcare settings, and we have this issue in our acute wards, right? We are always thinking about the psychological health of the other patients in the space and what they're observing and what what's unfolding around them. I think we can do a lot better in designing these spaces and we can be much more careful in asking people what's on their mind, what they're worried about, and holding that space and allowing those fears to air.
Great answer. And I hope I'm not being too obtuse here, but do you, does fear play a role in your life as a doctor now? Do you also have to worry about fear and deal with fear? My own fear? Mm. Uh, in terms of um, cancer or my work in psychiatry? I think your work, because I, 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 I suppose what I'm getting at, and it's annoying when people ask these leading questions, but that's okay. I mean, I, I feel like I work with fear often, fear of making a mistake, fear of missing something, fear of not working well enough with somebody. And I'm just wondering if that, if that plays a role for you. Yes, definitely. definitely. Again, I think you know, it's a part of the training, right? But it's also part of the role that we play and uh, the very special role that psychiatrists and regist- psychiatry registrars play in people's lives. Also, the role that society has afforded us and our responsibilities to protect people suffering certain conditions and uh, to protect society from people suffering certain conditions. I do, I do think fear is an important part of our job. Um, maybe Elizabeth can tell us <laughs> how it works long term um, and, and, and eventually, you know, the kind of peace that you achieve with that. I'll let you know, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, you know, coming back to uh, we'd have a role as culture bearers or culture mm-hmm. setters. And one of the things in your book was actually not only got kindness from some members of the treating team, but also there was kindness there from non-clinical people in the hospital. And I think we all have a role there as as culture setters. Yes, definitely. And I think that's part of the attraction of, of psychiatry. It's part of the reason. I mean, I went to med school to become a medical oncologist. That goal didn't last very long. I fell in love with the psychiatric model in second year, actually during a PBL, problem-based learning module on a, a first episode psychosis. And to me, it it was kind of all the things that I'd been thinking about in health. It was uh, advocacy and leadership and service design and thinking of people as whole people in environments with lots of factors going on. It was less reductionist than the other specialties. And I think you're right. I think, you know, we have a special role amongst our colleagues of being of being advocates for this stuff, but also giving each other permission to think about it and to think about better ways that, that we can be doctors. It's interesting because um, some of the states in Australia have taken on Connecting with People, which was a um, compassion-based training from the UK, developed by Alice Cole King. And there is an incredible body of knowledge and research around kindness Mm. and kindness from your healthcare professionals actually leading to increased outcomes, uh, decreased lengths of stay. Mm. And yet we don't promote that. Um, Your book tells it from the patient perspective, which, as we know, that sort of peer-led work is so important. It is. I went to medical school, and part of the reason I was a bit upset with the place was I expected, naively, to find a lot of the stuff that you just talked about because it was important to me as a patient. And I thought maybe that there was gaps in certain places, but not not that it was systemically missing. You have to sit an exam, you have to get good grades, you have to study hard to be a doctor. But I felt like there was room to incentivize the other skills, the exact stuff that you're just describing. And, you know, we've known for decades that the more we teach doctors and junior doctors, the more cynical they become. 
And the more that you cram them with medical knowledge, the more compassion fatigue they get, the higher mm. the rates of burnouts, the higher the rates of anxiety and depression. It seemed that there was a general lack of kindness across the board. And that was one of the most surprising things because I'd gone to medical school thinking I needed to fix things for patients and then realized that medical students and doctors were also struggling. And actually, kindness is probably the thing that unifies them and probably the thing that they both need and want to deliver but the system gets in the way of that. Ah, but we are culture changes and it will change. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at ranzcp.org. In your role as, as a psych registrar, how are you finding the system? You've described some good things about it. What, can, what else can we do? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> the caveat is I need to add here, and maybe Ollie can um, second this or maybe his experience is different, but as a junior doctor, I don't have a lot of spare time. So I imagined that I would go in, go to medical school, become a doctor, and then set about, you know, influencing medical culture, medical education selection, uh, hospital culture. But you're actually quite busy doing doing the job, and then there's all the assessment and the college assessment and the supervision and all the other stuff that comes with that. Almost like two two full time jobs, or at least one and a half put together. And so I have been less effective in this space than I would like. And I think some of that is system. Some of that is is legitimate system barriers. And I, I often think it would be amazing to see what would happen because lots of junior doctors have lots of amazing ideas. And the problem is energy and time. And it would be really nice if we built into the training, right, across all the specialties, we built into the training permission to think about this higher level stuff and to see what changes they might come up with rather than making a, a QI project mandatory or adding something that they need for their CV to get points so they can get into the College of Anesthetics. Rather than that, actually building in this kind of thinking time, which I think you know psychiatry as a profession understands is really important. In psychiatry, this is my first non-ward-based job. So I've, I'm one and a half years into the training program because I had a year off for my baby, which I recommend all men to do, by the way. And so I'm a year and a half into training. I'm in a child and adolescent community program now. It's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> I feel like you know, I've got time now to think about things and think about how I do things and reflect on consultations and how I interact with my colleagues. So Elizabeth, that's a long way of saying I don't have the solutions yet, <laughs> but I am working on them. Thinking time is good. Yeah, yeah. Just listening to you, Ben, I don't know if I may make a comment. I think you, from my experience, the, the thinking time gets easier as you get further through the training and you start to knock off a few assessments. And those early years, typically you're doing some time on an adult ward and then acute adult psychiatric care and things where service demands are very high. Mm. You, you sort of do feel a bit like a deer in the headlights sometimes just mm. trying to um, get everything done. And then as you start to move on through, you get a bit more time to breathe. And I do think sometimes 
Well, some of the assessments like the OSCE and the written essays can allow you to sort of or trigger that kind of thinking some, uh, in some respects because you have to mm. refer back to things like the CAN-MEDS model and think about management and sort of higher level thinking. And it can kind of breathe a bit more of that energy into your workplace. But I'm sure it's like that thinking globally, acting locally kind of mentality. Like, you know, you can have such good impacts on on culture just in the little things that you do, whether it's taking some medical students for a tutorial or, you know, working well with an intern or whatever it is, like there's sort of mm. small things along the way. Yeah. And I'd add to that uh, being um, being good colleagues. Mm. So a lot of our work is multidisciplinary and there's a lot of stereotypes about the doctor in the team. Um, I found like, you know, you can get a lot of social capital and you can really change opinions about the ability to collaborate and our collegiality. So yeah, I do I do take that point, Ollie, and it's nice to hear that down the track I'll have even more thinking time. Thanks for that hope. <laughs> ben, I'm interested, you know, obviously we work within a medical model and academic writing um, and academic publishing is sort of the cornerstone of uh, how we communicate in psychiatry. But your book sits apart from that and I suppose this is an opinion, but I, I feel like it can have just as much impact. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. I did think about this, Ollie, because I'd never written a book before. Um, I'd written a few little articles aimed at popular media, but n- nothing of this length and nothing as personal. I think it came from a place I wanted to model that illness-based narratives are actually really important. I think I think we do an okay job of this in psychiatry, although there's still some tension there because our conceptualizations of illness can be quite disparate from our populations. But I wanted to be a model of how the patient journey can actually be a quality source of education. I felt at university, at med school, that the patient voice was missing from a lot of our analysis. And actually, we only ever had uh, patients invited formally three times to lecture, quote unquote, lecture us. There were patients everywhere, right? On the wards, uh, in clinics, on PowerPoint presentations, in textbooks. But there weren't really patients empowered as teachers. I felt like med school has really neglected the patient perspective. I feel like it's a place uniquely where we can marry the textbooks and the professorial view of an illness with someone's encounter with that illness. And it's not a surprise, but of the three times that patients were invited formally, two of them were by psychiatrists at university. They know, right? They knew that they brought in someone with anorexia nervosa and they brought in someone who was experiencing schizophrenia and their mother. And I was glued to these lectures because you had the professor of psychiatry standing next to the person with the illness, both communicating, both teaching you about their understanding of this disease. Those things stick. And psychiatry knows that stories are important and medical histories are a form of story. We share them all the time, every MDT, every Grand Rounds. Mm. But I think we can enrich in those. And I think you're right, Ollie, it does take a certain confidence because you've got to slightly pull away from the academic view, haven't you? And, you know, we might have some status anxiety about that. But I think I think our understanding of illness and our ability to connect with illness will be richer because of that. And I think making a holistic plan is really important. And you can't do that unless you have empathy. 
you can't do it unless you have empathy, not only for the patient, but also their carer. Mm, definitely. On that point, what, what role did your family play in your recovery and even now? Oh, an, inc- an incredible role. Um, That's it, not to say that it was all roses. You know, a major illness is a disruptive force. We know that in, in our particular work. We know the kinds of stress that it can cause in, in both in a person and in a family system or a social unit. So there was some tension at times. Uh, people react to this kind of threat in different ways. My mother was um, extremely supportive and nurturing. That's saying a lot because, you know, she doesn't, she's not a hypochondriac. I know that's an old-fashioned word. She's not an hypochondriac, but she's close, right? She'd be sub-threshold illness anxiety or health anxiety. So this was quite activating for her. This this was her greatest fear being lived out on, in lots of ways. But she hung in there. Sana was ext- extremely supportive. It's not an, an instinctual for her to lean into emotions so sometimes she can find a lot of this stuff quite confronting and will withdraw. And she doesn't mind me talking about that. So that's been a negotiation and uh, arriving at a new language where we can meet each other's emotional needs in, in, under this significant threat. Uh, my sister, my father were all very supportive. I think people do what they can. And I think a part of me owning the illness experience and my responsibility here is um, acknowledging that and managing my expectations as much as they're managing their expectations. So, you know, my sister lived in Sydney at the time, so she couldn't come down as much as she would like, but she bought me acupuncture classes, for example. My father couldn't come down, but when he did come down, he'd like literally camp outside my bedroom for two weeks. Um, that, That was his way of compensating. They were very supportive. It really drove home the therapeutic value of that network. I could feel it during my chemotherapy I could feel it as my wounds healed. And it's something I really appreciate now that I'm on the other side of that and I'm interacting with family systems and social units. You probably get lots of that at camps. Bingo. Yep. Yep. So what are your future plans, Ben? Uh, thank you, Dr. Moore. I would like to finish the training. <laughs> yes, I would like to finish the training. Qualify. I think I would really like to get involved in teaching. I really enjoyed, as traumatic as medical school was in lots of ways, I actually uh, want to go back there and want to see what I can do in that curriculum space. I'm a big fan of the idea that we really need to think about how we're teaching the next generation of med students. I'd really like to get involved in med school selection, which is a little controversial, but I actually think we need to diversify this significantly. And I think we're at a good time to do that because you know if you trust the headlines there's a demand for doctors and they want thousands and thousands of them and i think medical schools will be under pressure to just accept and churn through more of the same and i think we need people from diverse backgrounds we need more aboriginal indigenous torres strait islander practitioners we need people with lived experience and i think that that would be a really nice space to get involved in I've also got a couple of ideas for books, but I need to kind of get over this one (laughs) before I sit down and try and write another one. And I also need to sit some college exams before I sequester a year to sit down and write another 100,000 words. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been a really great conversation. I think if there were three things that you want to get out there, just putting you on the spot there, three things that you would like to tell everybody, what would they be? 
so on the, the I might take two patient things and one doctor thing, given them that's the name of the book. One patient thing would be uh, second opinions are really important, and I'm not threatened by that. Uh, I think as doctors, we're not we shouldn't be threatened by that. The second thing I tend to tell my patients is I'm not afraid of Doctor Google. So I know that there's a lot of rubbish out there, but there's also a lot of good stuff. And it's almost remiss of us to think that our patients aren't interacting with the digital world because they are. So I actually empower patients to, yes, go and do reading, but don't stop there. You must discuss that reading with someone who's done some training in the space. So I will encourage my patients to bring in printouts, um, blog posts, weird spirals that they've ended up with on YouTube so that we can engage with that content, right? Because I see our, our job now less as knowledge gatekeepers and, and more as translators of that space in the information age. The other thing, that the third thing for doctors, particularly junior doctors, is um, it's okay to want something better. And I think the more that we feed that up the chain and we talk to hospital HR and our supervisors and our colleges, as a collective, we do have influence. And if you're unhappy with the state of how you're able to deliver care, please talk about it with somebody. Fantastic. Things for us all to have a think about. So thank you so much to my co-host, Dr. Ollie Robertson, and thank you, Ben. The book I found really easy to read. I would recommend it for the depth of perception that came with it. And of course, it feeds into one of my favorite things, which is around kindness and compassion. We hope to do another podcast with you for your next book. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Ollie. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks so much, Ben. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.